All right. Well, um, as we come to God's word, uh, as we've been saying, we're doing something a little bit different here over the summer. Uh, Normally, we're just kind of working our way through books of the Bible and just passages of scripture as they come to us. Uh, But over the summer, we're kind of putting that on pause, putting our study through the book of Revelation on pause uh, so that we can look at some difficult questions that are often asked, uh, maybe by the community around us, but also ourselves sometimes, if we're honest. Uh, Difficult questions that people ask about Christ, about Christianity, about the church. Uh, Difficult questions that oftentimes are hindrances or obstacles in the way of people fully entrusting their lives to Jesus and enjoying the life that he offers to them. And as I said last week, and I'm probably going to say each week throughout this, we're doing this for three reasons. One, we want to be a place. We want Grace Church to be a place where people can be honest with questions that they have and can feel free to ask those questions uh, without fear of judgment uh, or fear of being looked down upon. But instead, uh, they can ask those questions and they can be met with open ears and, and thoughtful hearts and thoughtful responses. We're looking at these questions uh, because, again, they're not just out there questions, but if we're honest, some of us have wrestled with some of these questions uh, or will continue to wrestle with them, especially our young people as they grow up and they come of age in a culture that's asking these questions, right? They're going to have to think through uh, these questions, and we want to try to equip and prepare one another to do that well. And then lastly, and most importantly, we're doing this because we want to grow ourselves in being equipped to be good witnesses and ambassadors for Christ ourselves, right? Again, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We live our faith publicly as ambassadors, as witnesses to the goodness and the glory of Christ, and we are prepared, or we prepare ourselves, should we be ever asked for the reason of the hope that we have within us. And so it's good for a church to, uh, from time to time, stop and think about some of the difficult questions that our culture is asking, that we are wrestling with, and think about how the Bible addresses uh, those questions. <clears throat> and uh, the other different thing here is I normally just preach through one text. Uh, I do that because it seems like a lot more work to me to preach through multiple texts of Scripture. <laughs> but we also do that because we just kind of preach through the text as it's given to you. I'm not trying to impose a message onto a text. I don't like to do that. However, the particular question that we're asking this morning uh, I was going back and forth all week between which text to use to address this question. It's a question that really, just the scripture in its fullness seems to address. And so I'm going to be breaking with my normal pattern and looking at a couple passages throughout the sermon. You're certainly welcome just to listen along. But if you want to follow along in your Bible, I'm going to be in Isaiah 58 a little bit. I'm going to be in Luke 5 and also Acts 2, uh, just briefly. And we'll see if we get through this. As you can tell, my voice is, is fading fast. I seem to have acquired a cold of uh, some of the people in our house. And so we're going to move this thing along, see how we can get through this. All right? So last week, we looked at the question of, isn't Christianity a straitjacket? Right? Or isn't Christianity with all of its rules and expectations and instructions for godliness and what it means to follow Jesus, isn't all of that an enemy to my personal freedom to my freedom to express myself and live fully into my dreams and my desires and my goals, whatever they may be in life. Okay, and we talked our way through that a good bit. All these sermons online, if you want to go back. And this one sort of builds on that a little bit, but it's a little bit different. And the question we're going out to after today is a question that is increasingly being asked um, in, you know, today's generations uh, in, in recent years. But this question is basically this. Isn't the church... Just another 
broken institution in our culture? Isn't the church just another broken institution in our culture such that I really have no need to even give it much consideration? Okay, that's our question. And actually, this question comes out of a broader issue that our culture is wrestling with. There are a lot of people who are saying these days that we're we're coming up on, if we're not already in, a, a significant cultural crisis where it seems like nobody has a great deal of confidence in our civic institutions, period, these days. Right? If I asked you, do you think that the majority of politicians in Congress are motivated and act first and foremost out of your best interest or the best interests of the people that they serve, or are they more motivated by, I don't know, holding on to their positions of power or telling the party line or whatever? Right? Statistics would say uh, that you probably lean towards thinking the latter. Or, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, questions about this coming out of COVID. Uh, there are, uh, statistics would say there's a, sign- or there's a growing number of people who are questioning our institutions of science. And we're no longer quite so certain that our institutions of science are just giving us raw, brute, unbiased data, but whose data now maybe comes with an agenda. Maybe a certain political agenda or a financial agenda for the pharmaceutical companies, or whatever it may be, right? There's, there's growing doubt of our scientific institutions. But what about our financial institutions? Do we tend to think that our financial institutions have the financial well-being and best interests of all people in, in view, or are they more just fundamentally concerned to scratch the back of those who really know how to play the game? Our institutions of criminal justice have come under scrutiny over the past couple years. Or institutions of higher learning, right? How many of you trust secular institutions of higher learning to mold and to shape your children into well-rounded men and women of society, right? That you, I'm guessing, maybe not, maybe we're, we're a church free of cynicism, but if, if the statistics of the broader culture in any way reflect statistics going on in here, right, there is a mounting cynicism, skepticism, lack of trust in these civic institutions, uh, which many people are saying is, is a problem. <laughs> Societies don't tend to do well when we don't trust our civic institutions. Right? But that's a separate topic. But here's the thing. Church is often being lumped into that. And people look at the church, and they have the same lack of trust. Isn't the church just another one of those broken institutions? Isn't the church, based on what they see, just another institution that is infatuated with power and position of privilege and prestige? In the culture? Or isn't the church just another one of those institutions that is divided all over the place and is all tribalized up and is more concerned about protecting their tribe and their brand and their unique denomination or whatever and is often casting judgment and political and, and not political but jabs at people who don't think or act or look like them or whatever? Isn't the church just another broken institution that has all these leaders? It seems like on a monthly basis, celebrity pastors or these megachurch leaders who are falling into scandal. Or these denominations that we hear, 
you know, reports coming out that there has been the systemic cover-up of years of hundreds of allegations of abuse. Right again, but simply, isn't the church just another one of those institutions that is more infatuated with power and privilege and protecting what's theirs than they are concerned about looking out for the needs of the communities and the people that they're connected to, right? This is the question. And it's a question that is uh, growing all the more, especially in the younger generations, right? You've maybe heard the the phrase, the rise of the nuns, (laughs) not the Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S, nuns, right? Those who on a questionnaire would cite no religious affiliation, right? Because they see the brokenness in these religious institutions. Or maybe you would see the rise in statistics of the people who would consider themselves followers of Jesus, and they desire to know Jesus, to grow in relationship with Jesus, but they look at the church as a broken institution and think, I have no need of that. It's just me and Jesus, and we're good. Thank you very much. Okay, so that's the question we're going after this morning. And uh, we're going to address that with uh, three responses. There's a whole lot of things that we could say. Um, we're going to narrow it down to three this morning. Let's see if we can get through this. Uh, one is that uh, we're going to say that the impulse to be concerned about the church is a good one. Two, uh, we're going to talk about how maybe the assumptions about the church are a little off. And three, uh, we're going to talk about how maybe the going solution to the problem is way off. All right? Those are the three things we're looking at. So first of all, uh, if it is your intuition, or it is, if it is your inclination, I should say this, to look at some of the problems that are going on in the church and to have real concern, to have uh, a, gener- a general skepticism or a desire that that not be right and a desire to call that out, I would say that intu- intuition is a good one. Okay, for sure, the church has plenty of problems and we'll talk about that in just a second, okay? But we, first of all, we want to affirm that if you're someone who sees those problems and you see the struggles that the church goes through, and something in your heart says, that's not right. There's something broken about that. We want to affirm that intuition. In fact, uh, I would say to you <laughs> that the Bible all over the place is full of voices of people who are often calling the religious establishment to account and are often railing against the religious establishment. In the Old Testament, we call them prophets. <laughs> This is what prophets did, right? Prophets oftentimes went after the religious establishment, the religious leaders, oftentimes because they were in cahoots with the political establishment and the political leaders, and they had these arrangements where if I scratch your back, you scratch my back, and together we're going to hold on to our positions of privilege that we have in the society, right? The prophets are constantly calling them out for that, constantly calling them out for how motivated by all that they are leading God's people into patterns of injustice, uh, patterns of idolatry. And these prophets too, they're not just going after the religious establishment of the religious leaders, but oftentimes they go after anybody who is just playing the religious game, who is just playing the God game for personal self-interest. And here's where I'm thinking of Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 uh, God is speaking to the voice of the prophet, through the voice of the prophet, to his people. His people who are suffering, suffering in exile, and to a people who are bemoaning 
their suffering. And they're saying, why are we suffering? How long are we going to suffer? And where is God? Where is God especially considering that we are desiring to know him? And we are desiring to be near to him. And we are desiring to grow in understanding of his statutes. Goodness, we are even fasting. (laughs) You know how hard it is to go a full day without nice meats off of the grill or whatever? Right? Or my diet Pepsi in the morning? Whatever it is, my coffee. Like we are fasting so that God would hear us and be attentive to our cries. And God speaks to his people through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and he speaks, he encourages them to, them to challenge them. And part of the challenge is, look, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. This is Isaiah 58, beginning verse 3. And you oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. And then jumping down to verse 6. He says, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh and blood? If you pour yourself out for the hungry, the prophet writes, and satisfy the desire of afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Then the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. Right, you hear what he's saying there? Yeah, okay, you're doing, you're going through all these religious principles. You're desiring to know my name, my ways and study my statutes and you're even fasting. But it's all so that you can manipulate me to back up your selfish interests and your selfish desires. And at the end of the day, you care very little for anybody around you as evidenced by the way you oppress your workers, the way you quarrel and fight and bicker, the way you could care less that there are those around you who are suffering in hunger, or suffering with lack of shelter. Is this not the fast I choose, that you attend to those things? Jesus is the same way, right? Jesus goes after the religious establishment quite a bit. In Luke chapter 11, I believe it is, he pronounces all these woes on the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers. Woe to you Pharisees! You who tithe regularly, week in, week out. You even tithe of your herbs and spices. You tithe your mint and your dill. And yet you neglect the weightier issues of the law. You neglect the business of justice and the love that God has for his people. Or woe to you lawyers, you prosecutors of the law, who inflict your heavy burdens on God's people. Yet you yourselves wouldn't dare to lift a hand or a finger for the burdens that those people have. Or woe to you, scribes, who love to walk around in your long, fancy robes and like to get, you know, the the greetings of reverence as you're walking through town or like love to have the seats of honor in the synagogue or the positions of privilege at the community feasts. And yet you devour the homes of the widows, Jesus says, because it's in your power to do so. Essentially, Jesus is saying, how dare you make worship and religion, all about your selfish gain, to the neglect 
of those who hurt and suffer and have needs around you. Right, and Jesus, he not only goes to the religious establishment, but he goes to the everyday common worshipers as well too, right? It's Jesus who says, look, a day is going to come where I'm going to separate, you know, those who know me and those who I know, for, you know, and put on, on my left and on my right. And to those who had no concern uh, to show care to the sick or had no concern to give food to the hungry or drink to the thirsty, who had no concern to look out for the prisoners, who had no concern for the least of these, I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Right? In other words, it's all to say, look, the Bible from cover to cover shares that critique, right? That any religious institution that is only concerned about preserving its power and privilege and its self-centered interests and is not concerned about the needs of around them, you should know that the Bible rails against that. And your intuitions that that is not right, it's a good one. In fact, I might go so far as to say that that too in- intuition that you have might very well be there because you've grown up in a society that has been heavily influenced by the Bible and by the message of the church. Right? You go back into the ancient world to when the church was just getting started, and, and it wasn't Rome <laughs> that was concerned about the poor among them. It was the church that was putting Rome to shame by the way that they cared for the poor and looked after those who had need. It wasn't Rome when, you know, plagues and disease were sweeping through their major cities and their urban centers. It wasn't Rome that was concerned to care for the sick. They were very concerned to care for their, their sick and wounded uh, military men, right, because that served their interests. But in terms of the general populace, it was every man for themselves. It wasn't Rome that was caring for that. It was the church, that established the first hospitals. It was the church and the church leaders that first established the, the, the centers of medical care or were welcoming people into their home to receive care or were at, at great risk to themselves. We're going up to people with deadly diseases and contagious diseases and giving them themselves to care for them in their sickness and in their time of need. You know, it wasn't Rome that... Uh, was concerned about the orphans and the fatherless. It wasn't Rome that was concerned that on a daily basis, unwanted babies were being discarded in trash heaps and by the roadside because it was a perfectly legal thing to do back then. And because their philosophers, who they held in high esteem, right? The the old Greco-Roman philosophers like Aristotle and Plato, they actually called it an ethical virtue that you would discard any children that you can see have some sort of defect and won't be able to grow up and and contribute in a positive way to a healthy society. It wasn't Rome caring for them. It was the church on a daily basis. Sifting through through the trash heaps, trying to find children, especially young females, young girls who had been discarded by the wayside so they can bring them into their homes and give them a family and love and care well for them. All to say, you know, if you have this intuition, you know, I would challenge you to go read some historian or go read even some secular uh, sociologist. And a lot of them will say that, yeah, a lot of these intuitions that we have, they come because of the great cultural revolution that Christianity launched onto the scene but I can't keep going on down those roads. We've got to move on. But that's the first thing. Your intuition is a good one. Your instincts are a good one. And they might be there because you've been influenced by the Bible more than you realize. Two, your assumption about the church might be a little bit off. Uh, and here's what I'm going to read from uh, Luke chapter 5. 
beginning in verse 27. And what I'm highlighting here is that in the early days of Jesus' ministry, you see this interesting thing where he is calling some very shady characters to be his followers, to be his disciples, to be the future leaders of his movement and of his church. And one example is here in Luke 5, 27, uh, where he calls Levi. Uh, Verse 27, after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything behind, he rose and followed him. Right? And if you've... If you've grown up in the church or you've grown up in Sunday school classes, right, I don't need to tell you that uh, tax collectors were very shady individuals. In fact, they were often considered the worst of the worst in their society, right? The tax collectors were the Jewish Israel citizens of Israel who were working for Rome and were taxing and going and collecting taxes from the people that Rome was oppressing, right? Their fellow brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters. And they were taxing them so that they could send the money to Rome so that Rome could build its war machine and continue to build its, you know, heavy hand through which it was oppressing God's people. And of course, these tax collectors, they would often charge more than they needed to charge to send to Rome. And they would pad their own pockets with them. Right? So these were the lowest of the low. These were the treasonous of the treasonous. Is that a word? I don't know. Anyway, so God, Jesus is calling Levi, one of these tax collectors. Hey, come follow me. Come be one of my disciples. Come be one of the future leaders of my movement. He leaves him behind. He rose and followed him in verse 29. And then Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Right? You see what they're saying here. They're saying, good gracious. (laughs) What is your leader doing fellowshipping with, eating with, communing with the lowest of the low? Uh, It would be like if, you know, as good, loyal, faithful, Philadelphia sports fans, we found out in our neighborhood there was a party that a whole bunch of Dallas Cowboy people were throwing to celebrate their glory years 30 years ago, back in the 90s or whatever, right? And you decide to go to that, right? First of all, how is it possible that in an area there's this shameful thing called the Dallas Cowboy Party? And how shameful is it you would go to that and be a participant in that? Only it's much, much, much worse than this. How is it that your leader can go to the tax collectors and sit and commune and fellowship with these wretched sinners? And Jesus says in verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? And you see this played out all throughout Jesus' ministry. You see this played out all throughout who Jesus is calling to himself, right? You think about Peter, you know, this hothead who's you know, quick to draw out his dagger and slice off the, near, the ear of the centurion in the garden, or this Peter who is so proud and confident, oh, I would never forsake you or abandon you, and yet in the times of greatest crisis, he's denying his Savior. Or you think of James and John, right? The sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, who when they're traveling through a Samaritan village and they get less than a warm greeting, they're saying, hey, Lord, should we call down thunder? You know, or lightning from heaven to consume, sorry, call down fire from heaven to consume these wretched Samaritans. 
where it sees James and John, right, as they're getting closer to Jerusalem, are off having side conversations saying, hey, I wonder who's going to be sitting on his left and who's going to be sitting on his right when he comes into the kingdom and he gets into his position of power and privilege. Maybe, maybe you or me can be on the left and right and we can share in that. I don't know, you think later of the Apostle Paul, who was a harsh persecutor of the church, right? You think of the church, too, that was full of sinners, right? In other words, here's the point, right? If your assumption is that the church is the place where all the good and perfect and scandal-free people go, uh, your assumption's a little off, right? right? The church is not this social club for the perfect and the squeaky clean moralists, right? The church is a rehabilitation center for sinners. A rehabilitation center for sinners who have been forgiven, who have been restored in relationship with their creator, uh, who have been made part of the family and given all the great hopes and promises and who have been set free from the power of indwelling sin, yet on a daily basis still struggle with sin still struggle with pride, who still struggle with anger, who still struggle with self-centered motives and intentions, right? And so when the church gathers for worship, we're here not to celebrate ourselves and our moral perfection. We're here to celebrate God and all of his goodness and his graciousness and his mercy to us. And we're here to confess our sinfulness, And we're here to lean on his grace and his mercy to us so that we might be renewed and reformed yet again, more and more into the image of Christ. It's all to say if your assumption of the the church is the place, the institution that you would think would be free from sin or free from scandal, your assumption is a little off. It'd be like walking into, I don't know, Barbecue Addicts Anonymous and being shocked to find people who have residue of stubs, sweet and tangy hickory barbecue sauce on their fingers. <gasps> I can't believe it. Or going into an Alcoholics Anonymous, right, and be shocked to find that somebody gave in to the pressure and had a drink the night before. Or being shocked going to a Rageaholics meeting and finding, you know, and being shocked that somebody there uh, lashed out in anger towards their spouse or their kids the night before, right, in the same way to come to the church a rehabilitation center for sinners and to be shocked when you brush up with sinfulness or be shocked when you hear even of scandal, right? It's to have an assumption about what the church is that's slightly off. And that's not all to say that to excuse sinful behavior by any means. That's to remind us all the more that we have this responsibility to be growing and be weeding that out and holding each other accountable and... I would say it's a reminder to us as well, too, that as we carry ourselves publicly before a watching world, it is so important that we carry ourselves in the posture that Scripture is always calling us to exhibit, this posture of humility and a posture of complete dependency, a posture of weakness and neediness, desperate for the ongoing grace and mercy of Christ in our lives. Right, you remember how Jesus addressed the church in Laodicea when we were working through those letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Laodicea was the last church and some of the most scathing rebuke went to the church in Laodicea. This church that said, I am rich, I've prospered, and I'm in need of nothing. And as a result, Jesus was 
on the outside, knocking on the door for entrance because they had no viable need of him. They didn't sense any need for Jesus. And Jesus comes to them and he says, yeah, the taste of you in my mouth, it makes me sick. It makes me want to vomit. You think you are rich and successful and accomplished, but I tell you, you are poor, naked, wretched, pitiable, and blind. And I counsel you sincerely to daily buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might truly be rich. But I counsel you to buy from me salve for your eyes so that you might truly see. Or I counsel you to buy from me clothing to cover your shameful nakedness. In other words, I counsel you <laughs> to live a posture of humility and neediness and dependency upon me and my grace and my mercy. And that's something that we should be always being called to. The moment we neglect that and the moment we posture ourselves before our culture in a position of pride or whatever, it's not only the time when we'll, people will stop listening, but it's also the time where we give terrible witness to the power, the glory, and the sufficiency of Christ in our time of need. Well, I still have a little bit of voice here left, so last point. Um, right, your intuitions that come from a good place, your assumptions might be a little off. The going solution, way off. Right, the going solution as I see the church, not a broken institution full of sin and scandal and whatever. And so, yeah, I'm going to stay out of that. Maybe I'll give Jesus a shake. Maybe I'll pursue Jesus a little bit, but I don't need that church. And I would just say that intuition and that solution is just way off. And I would say this on the, on the broader cultural level too. Like, think about this for a second. We talked about last week how there is this rampant individualism going in our culture. And part of the reason that we view Christianity as a straitjacket is because the value of the highest order in, the, in our secular culture is, look, you need to know yourself and you need to live authentically your life and who you are, not conforming yourself to any outside constraints. You live on your own terms. Basically, you need to know you, you need to do you, you need to be you, and you need to look out for you above all else. Okay, so here's the thing, right? After decades of that being preached and instilled in the lives of our people and our young people, is it any surprise that our institutions are full of people who are more concerned about their own self-interest than they are about the interests and the needs of the people that they serve? Right? Are we surprised that our, our cultural institutions are full of people who use those positions maybe for the perks that they offer to themselves or use those positions of self-expression more so than using those positions to care for people outside of themselves. Or maybe, they get, maybe they'll care for those people only after they've, been, they've received what's theirs, right? Part of the reason we find ourselves in this mess where our institutions are less than trustworthy is because of this rampant individualism that says, hey, you just look out for yourself, you just do you, you just be you, and you take care of you, and you don't need other people and, and all that, and you don't need the church where what the admonition from scripture uh, is that, well, actually, the church might be the very thing, the most important thing that our culture needs. And church might be the very thing, the most important thing that you need in your life. A church that has built into its DNA and has as its core and its foundation this son of God who would come and lay down his life for the needs of others. You know, and here's where I'm thinking of Acts 5, Acts chapter 2, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to summarize it for you because it's for the sake of time. 
But this is the passage where on the day of Pentecost, Peter rushes out into the square in Jerusalem and there's people there from all different tongues and backgrounds and whatever. And, Jesus, and, and Peter preaches this eloquent sermon to them, all about basically the resurrection of Christ. And his closing line is, let all the house of Israel know this, that this Jesus whom you crucified has been made both Lord and Christ. And 3,000 people are cut to the quick. They say, what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Basically, turn around and realign yourself and your life to this king and this Lord. And then at the end of chapter 2, it, it describes what that life looked like in the church. And we see a couple things. We see one that they dedicated and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And they devoted themselves to meeting regularly in people's homes and breaking bread with one another and sharing meals together. And they devoted themselves to making sure that no one among them was in need. And if somebody was in need, they would sell their possessions so they would have resources to care for those people in need. In other words, can I say this? When I look at that, what's going on in the life of the ancient church, one word that jumps out to me, maybe it doesn't jump out this way to you, but one word that, that stands out to me is the life of mutual submission. And I, I use that word intentionally because I know it's a dirty word in our American culture today, right, of individualism. But what you see in the ancient church was a life of mutual submission. Submission first and foremost to the teaching of the apostles who are giving witness to Jesus Christ, the Lord and King, right? But then submission to the needs of one another, the relational needs of one another, right? When they were gathering and meeting together in people's homes and breaking bread and having meals together, or submission to the spiritual needs of one another as they would gather together to pray, to rejoice and to give thanks, or submission even to the material and the physical needs of one another as they would sell their possessions so that they had resources to give to anybody who was in need, right? See, this is exactly what our culture needs, right? There are a whole host of voices, even secular voices that say, yeah, a society begins to go downhill real fast when we stop living in mutual submission and mutual dependence and mutual self-giving towards one another. Churches go downhill really fast when they stop living in mutual submission and mutual dependence and mutual self-giving towards one another. You know, churches go downhill real fast when people are only interested in their own self-served interests or when leaders get into positions where they're no longer in submission to anyone and they're no longer accountable to anyone and they have just sort of unchecked positions of power. That's a recipe for disaster. <clears throat> and by the way, if you ever want to talk about how there's checks of accountability and power here at Grace Church or in the Bible Fellowship Church, I'd be happy to talk about that. I'm not going to go there this morning for the sake of time again, but all to say... That what the world needs, man, is an institution that doesn't just look at the business of looking out for others as a good moral principle, but has that built into its DNA, as its foundation, has this God who took on flesh so that he could entirely give himself away for the needs of another. And it was the church that was built around this that, utterly, that completely changed the world, launched the biggest cultural revolution the world has ever known. It wasn't Rome right, that, or it wasn't the gods of Rome, I should say, 
that were preaching care for the poor and watching out for the sick, right? The gods of Rome were all about pride and power and privilege. And to be godlike meant that you attained to that position yourself. Lord, it wasn't the enlightenment and the scientific revolution that taught us to be compassionate towards others and look out for the needs of others, right? Dare I say, the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, oh, that brought us survival of the fittest, right? And the sacrifice of the weakest, right? It's only Christianity in its unique form that has as its core in its DNA the sacrifice of the fittest for the survival of the weakest. And so a church that is most faithful to, to that God and to that Christ is going to be a church that lives out its life in mutual submission and submission to him, but then submission to one another and submission to the needs, relational, spiritual, physical of those among us and those in our community. So we've got to close it up here, but I would pray that God would lead us as a church to be an institution that though we struggle and though we have sin, our desire is to reflect that self-giving love of our Savior. And if you have that question this morning about whether the church is another broken institution, one, I would say, again, your sensibilities are good and right. You might want to question where those came from. Two, make sure you're not assuming the church is something that it's not. And three, uh, question your solution. The rampant individualism isn't getting us anywhere. And what you need is to be a part of a group of people who are committed to the self-giving, sacrificial love of a God like this a God who would give himself in the person of Jesus Christ for our full and perfect redemption. And it's that full and perfect redemption, by the way, which will free you to trust again, free you to trust sinners, free you to enter into relationship with sinners, knowing that this Jesus has given himself fully for your full and perfect redemption. And he, and he alone has secured for you restoration, forgiveness, reunion with your creator, and all the eternal promises that he has in store for you. And so may this God lead us into a delight and a joy and a willingness, a heartfelt willingness to live out that kind of love and submission on his behalf and in his great name's sake. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we ask, amen.